Chicago years, though, that would have been like basically my 20s. Like I moved here to LA when I was 30. For the, for the gold rush. I moved here for the gold rush, yeah. Welcome and thank you for listening to Almost Almost Famous, the podcast where actors, writers, comedians talk about the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of working towards making it in this crazy biz and how they're almost, almost famous. I'm your host, Daniel Acker, and today's guest is an incredible actress, writer, improviser, and comedic performer. Joining me is none other than Katie Nonson. Hey, Katie. Woo! Hey, how's it going? Great. You starting off with a woo is just classic Katie. <laughs> it's not a high, it's just a siren call. <laughs> for myself. Yeah, get ready for me, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> if, yeah, we. I mean, what, what, what's my other options? Just saying, like, oh hi. Yeah, that's that is the typical <laughs> go-to. But oh, woo, is is the siren call, and then the get ready for me, everybody, is like the catchphrase of your of your doll, like that has a pull string. Yep. All right, we're off to a good start. Great start. I've known Katie for a few years now, and very quickly, I was struck by how like almost professionally and expertly she was silly <laughs> there's few people who you go like oh okay you have a gift for buffoonery katie's a very brilliant performer but i think it takes a brilliant performer to be able to perform idiotically and i think she just has that sweet spot for it dang i'm gonna t- i i i'm choosing to take that as a high compliment it is it is i do not mean in any way that to like oh she's just a silly dumb performer like no i think you're an incredible talented performer oh dang that's really sweet i really appreciate that thank you you're welcome where do you think that like has come from Ooh, this is a hot this is these are hot questions i'm gonna love talking about myself so much this is so weird and rare for me to talk like this about myself um I think that I, I think I was always like that. My mom said that when I was a baby, like I would sit in the corner by myself and just laugh. And she'd be like, what are you laughing at? Like, what are you, what are you reacting to? And she's like, it would, sometimes I kind of spook her out because like there'd be no one around me or like no TV on, no music, no books. Like I would just like sit in the corner and laugh to myself. So anyway, and I like, and I never, I never remember, I never remember knowing that I was funny. Like, I never thought of myself as funny. I thought of myself, like, and then, so this is, you know, we're starting out with, with a real hot brag um, it, at West Waterloo High School, what I, where I graduated in Iowa. I was voted as, like, class clown and funniest. I like those were two categories. They were two separate categories. And I remember being, like, really? Like, I'm shocked that people see me like that. And I was a senior in high school and I've gone to school with these people, like many of them, my best, best, best friends since like kindergarten. And like never once was I'm like, these people think I'm hilarious or like everyone thinks I'm a clown or everyone thinks I'm funny. Like I never saw myself like that ever, ever. But I knew I liked to laugh and I knew that I was always laughing and I knew that I was always around. Like I always thought like, oh God, all my friends are so funny and my family is so funny. Like I always credited it to everybody but me Mm. where I was like, oh, I think what I knew and what I liked and what I learned growing up, like up until, you know, 17 years old is like, I like to laugh and I like to be around people who like to laugh and whether or not I was the source of that laughter or not was irrelevant to me. Gotcha. 
And for everyone listening, to to get funniest in class clown at West Waterloo High School, <laughs> yes, yes, which, which yes. is a hotbed for comedians and top yeah. clowning talent. Now, once you got those kind of superlatives in high school, was it kind of a lock in of like, oh, oh, I can do this. Like, oh, this is a thing. Like, oh, hell no. No, I okay. was like, this is so weird. No, it took me up until I was about 22 to like really own that. Like, I feel like uh, maybe a little, maybe like 21, but like, I no, it wasn't like, oh, cool. This is my identity. Like, it didn't feel like that at all. So then I went to mm-hmm. college and it, and I remember in college was the first time in my life where I ever felt like an outsider. I kind of realized like, oh, I'm different. Like I was in a sorority and I'm so grateful for for that experience being in a sorority, but like, man, I was an outsider in that sorority and I knew it and I knew it from day one. And I knew that there was people there that really valued me and thought that I was awesome and like wanted to be my friend and thought that I was cool. And there was people there who despised me and thought that I was like obnoxious and annoying and attention seeking. And I'm like, oh, this is weird. Like I've never felt like this before. That was, that was such like a dichotomy. And then I studied abroad when I was like uh, my junior year of college and I was around people, a lot of them who were like theater majors. Where were you? Uh, it was, I was in London and I was not a theater major, by the way, but a big part of that program was like seeing plays and seeing like shows on the West End. And like that, that was a huge part of it. It's like experiencing that culture of like living in a big city and everything that a big city had to offer. And I never lived in a big city up until that point. Like it was again, like I, like I very quickly found myself in this group of people and not a theater major. I shouldn't say that. Like some of them were theater majors, but some of them were just like fucking funny. And I remember this one guy in particular who his name's Kevin Schultz and not, not the Kevin that I ended up marrying. And he was, and is like just the funniest dude. And he was like a finance major at Indiana university. I'm not, I, he, he works in that world in some shape or form now. And I feel like first time in a few years that I found myself like, Oh, great. Oh, this I'm back in that comfort zone. I'm back in that comfort zone of being around people who appreciate my silliness. I was around people who like to have fun. Like that's how I always <laughs> saw it, but it's like, Oh, I am helping being a source of this fun. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, growing up and through high school, you never felt necessarily like the spotlight's on you and now you're the funny one, either entertaining or stealing focus because everyone was kind of fun and entertaining. But when you got to college, you were in a circle of people who were like, like, oh, okay. Oh, I guess she has the stage. And you were like, no, no, I don't have, I thought this is how we talk. I thought this is how we get along. And so by, when you finally went abroad, you were back in a similar circle that you had in high school where do you think like almost unconsciously or consciously that pushed you more towards I would say like improv or sketch than just like stand-up because improv is a team sport you know you aren't necessarily having to be like look at me I'm doing all these things well yeah I guess I mean I like stand-up was never even a consideration it's hard to describe it wasn't like I still didn't own it I still didn't think like I'm a funny person like when I was in high school, I had done improv and I had done like, as part of like our speech team, there was like an improv portion. 
And mm-hmm. I remember, um, again, thinking like, I'm very average at this, but man, that guy's great. And that guy's great. Where it's like, oh no, actually I was also great. I just didn't see myself. I'm like all these people, man, they're great. And I'm hanging with them somehow. Like not realizing that like, oh no, you're a part of this. <laughs> like you are also helping elevate this. So I, so when I, you know, when I studied abroad, I remember a lot of those people being like, you are hilarious. You're the funniest person. Like being like really complimentary and really like thinking that these qualities that I have were great. I'm like, wow, that's weird. Like, I think I'm so not funny. (laughs) I mean, this would have been like 1999. So, I mean, you were a baby, I get it, but I was not. I was just uh, figuring out shapes and colors (laughs) at that point. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. But I was, you know, I lived nine lives by that point. And so I remember somebody telling me when I was studying abroad about Second City in Chicago and being like, maybe that's my path. Like, maybe that's a thing to look into. And Chicago seemed very familiar because I had all these friends from Chicago that I met at college. And so it was just like, oh, that's what I'll do. And I wasn't worried about money and I wasn't worried about work. And I wasn't worried about who I was going to live with or, you know, like I was just like, cool. Okay, great. That'll, that'll be cool. Cause that's still in the Midwest and that'll be, be comfortable. And I can drive there if I need to, you know, like it, it just felt like kind of a, the natural thing to do, but it wasn't like, okay, great. I'm going to be a Canadian. I'm going to go to second city. I'm not going to do so. Like it wasn't calculated. It was just like, oh great. That sounds fun. So after I graduated, I did end up going to Chicago and like took classes at IO and, and second city and got into that system. And, um, and kind of like, that was it. So you said, yeah, you went to Chicago and kind of went through that process. But like you said, it wasn't like you were like a kid being like, I'm going to do comedy and you like looked up like the best places to do comedy and started no. doing, it was just sort of like, it kind of started to flow very naturally. What kind of caused you to go from doing second city in Chicago to coming out to Los Angeles? So those Chicago years though, that would have been like basically my twenties. Like I moved here to LA when I was 30. For the, for the gold rush. I moved here for the gold rush. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I mean, these are fun jabs that you and I always do. For, oh for man. All- yeah. To, to, <laughs> do not feel bad about Katie. Like Katie, like, and now I'm getting a little like, you know, I know Katie fairly well, but it's always good to talk to people more in depth and realizing that you never saw yourself as like the funny person or you feel weird about it makes perfect sense because like, like Katie and I really like met in this weird moment where like she apologized for something and I like teased her relentlessly about how she shouldn't apologize to me and how dare she even talk to me. And the way she responded and laughed and wasn't like, skittish about it made me go like okay this is a person where we can like jab at each other and tease each other because like we know it's all love and it's like at no point was I like oh I think I hurt Katie's feelings like I you're very like yeah okay like we're just teasing we're having a good time yes the teasing thing was such a huge part of my upbringing and still is like I feel most comfortable with people when like I can be teased a little bit and they're teasing me a little bit and I can tease them. Like, I feel like, Oh, cool. Because you know that I think the world of you, you know, that I think you're the funniest, greatest person on the earth. So it's like, for me to make fun of you is to, is like, I like there, that's how I express like we're comfortable and we're friends with each other now because we're teasing each other. Yeah. So anyway, I uh, moved to LA for the gold rush the entire time I was in Chicago, like it felt right after I was done with classes. So maybe like, I don't know, I was probably like 22, 23 at the time. And I remember that then was the time where I'm like, oh, I, I am like, I was feeling like I was validating myself 
And therefore I was getting validated, you know, like mm -hmm. it felt like, oh, this is, that was kind of the first time where I'm like, okay, I'm good at this. I'm good at this. And I know that I'm good at this and other people are seeing that I'm good at this. And that feels good. And by other people, I mean, mostly peers, but like peers in this community that was like, oh, like, I, I think Chicago improv people are the fucking best. Like they're so good and they're so funny. And they're, you move there for like kind of pure reasons, which at the time was important to me. So I felt like in Chicago, I had this like very steady climb of like opportunities and feel like I'm getting better. I'm getting more opportunities. I feel like I'm getting better. I'm getting more opportunities. I'm getting more money. I'm like, it felt like very like oh, cool. Like this ladder, I believed that this ladder was a ladder, you know, whether it was or not. So then I wait like about the last few years that I was in Chicago, I did a TV show called Sports Action Team that was produced out of Chicago by a Chicago production company but like we filmed it so it was behind the scenes of an espn type show and we filmed all over the country so even though it was produced out of chicago we filmed basically wherever an athlete or an organization would allow us to and most of that was here like most of that was on the west coast like with the like the west coast nfl teams we weren't in chicago for about six months of the year because we were filming this show and this show was improvised like fully improvised and it was funny and it was great and it was like such a cool 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 experience it aired three seasons and so one of the like during the it was after we had done it was after we had wrapped but there was like uncertainty if we were going to get another season and so like the last like maybe nine months or something, we were kind of in Chicago in this holding pattern. The production company's like, please don't leave because, and then we, we, you know, we were vocal with them about like, we want to move to LA. And they're like, please don't because we might get another season and like, we'll leave you here. Then eventually somebody in LA, a manager in LA saw the show and was like, hey, uh, let's develop more shows like this. Like you, please come out here. We will, so like we, we did. So we, we, moved, we came out here, myself and some of the cast, and we met with this manager and a bunch of different agents and production companies, got some yeses pretty quickly about like, great. Like we had a couple ideas that we were pitching. We had, you know, Sports Action Team was still on the air. So I think that was very attractive. Like, oh, we have a show that's on the air and now we're developing new shows with you guys. And this would have been like my late 20s that all this was going on. And so it felt like an invitation to come out here of like, great, this is the next step. It was, it was kind of officially known that we were not going to get another season of sports action team. So we came out here and the first, I'd say like two or three years that I was here, that's what we did is like we developed these TV shows and it was fucking cool. And None of them aired, <laughs> like none of them, a couple of them got bought, but none of them ended up, you know, airing. It was crazy. Like it was like, oh, LA is easy. And by that time I had had a lot of friends from Chicago who would come out here already and who were like, it's so hard. Oh my, nobody cares about Chicago. Nobody cares about Second City. Nobody cares that you have this X, Y, Z on your resume. Like it's like starting over and it, like it was really humbling. And, and, and it was humbling for us too, because especially when none of the shows that we <laughs> created and made pilots for and were bought and we got paid for, like none of those came to fruition. And so I feel like it was about two or three years after I had moved here 
that I started having the LA experience that everybody talked about of like, what yeah. am I doing? And no, and the manager that we had stopped working with us because none of these shows sold. Like it was crazy. It was like a really uncertain time. Um, when all, like, and all those things seemed to go away quick. Like it wasn't a gradual thing. It was like, yes, 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 yes. Everything's happening. Everything's great. Everything's great. Nope. None of these shows got bought. You're dead. Like it felt, it felt that quickly and that swift. Yeah. So that, that, that's what led me here to LA. It's interesting because it sounds like up until this point, like you said, you kind of followed the fun, but what was the next, I guess now in Los Angeles in your thirties of like, Oh, now what? Like, what was the, was it still a follow your fun or was it a, a, a perspective shift? It was a perspective shift in a not positive way. Like mm-hmm. I, like I, and I still kind of am working through that of like, I think for a, like basically my entire life and the way that you phrased it is accurate, but it's not again, how I would have seen it, but it's true of like, I was just doing the, the next funnest thing. Like, how can I, what can be the most joyful way for me to spend my life now? Like that is how I was living my life. When all these opportunities and the manager and the the production companies and the agents, when all that shit went away, then I started to get very calculated about my career and what next steps were. And like almost like a mathematician about like, okay, what do I do now? And And like, I made a series of choices that were not for the, that didn't have very good intention behind them. Like the intention was, I need money now. I need a job now, which, um, which led to a lot of like reactionary choices and reactionary mm-hmm. moves and reactionary steps as opposed to, oh, what's going to be the funnest way, the funnest thing for me to do? Or what's going to be the most joyful way to spend my time? Like I started, I started believing that shit, which, and I say shit with emphasis of like, welcome to the real world. Like, I think that that is such an archaic, outdated, insane way of living of like, great, you go to college at 21, then you get a job and then you're miserable forever. And you just pray for retirement. Like, I think that that's, that is never the way that I wanted to live my life and still is not the way that I want to live my life. I was doing a lot of things on the advice of somebody else is telling me what to do. So I'm going to do that because that will get me the things that I need in order to have more stability in this career. I needed that ladder. I needed that like, great. And this will be what I do next is like, I'll start taking classes here and then this will happen and then this will happen and this will, and I'll get this. And like, it was just like, it wasn't for the purest reason. Now with these rungs in this process, have you had almost a singular definition of success or has that changed? And does that definition at any point involve the desire to be rich and famous? Like, or has, has that all changed through the years? Oh, I think it evolves so often so quickly. Mm. And I think the constant thing is I want to be true to myself, meaning I want this to feel good. Like I want it to align with who I am as a human being. There have been times where I have done things where I'm like, God, this feels shitty. This does not feel good. This is not, even if it was like on outwardly a positive experience, 
and, 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 and you see how that backfires. And sometimes it takes a while to see how that backfires, but like you not being true to yourself in moments like that, and you not saying or standing up for the thing that you know is right, always has negative effects. That's been, that's been a constant for me. That's a thing that I'm constantly aware of, of like, do what feels good to you, do what feels right to you. But in terms of like, you know, I mean, I could talk forever about that one question that you just asked, like wanting to be rich and wanting to be famous. The famous thing isn't so much about like, like I, I, I have a kind of a negative connotation with like the word fame. Like it seems a little cheap to me, I guess, because I, I, there's like some negative parts I think about being famous. Um, so that doesn't feel right to say like, I want to be famous, but I do want to be seen. And I think there's a huge difference there. Like I really, really, really want to be seen and I want my work to be seen and I want my voice to be heard. And th those are very, that, that whether you're an accountant or an actor or writer or comedian or whatever, like, I think those things, those are universal truths. Like I think everybody wants that. Everyone wants to feel valued and feel like their work is valued and to be seen and to be heard. Which makes sense if, if part of your definition of success across the board, the constant is being true to yourself. Then another offshoot of that would be, you know, your creativity would be an extension of your true self. So anytime you did something that you felt was truly you, you're like, oh, this is what I want to be seen. But in those moments when you've, you know, you're just following kind of the rules or taking notes you might not have agreed with. While it might have been a successful thing you created, it might not have felt so much true to you. Right. I wrote for this TV show for a few years. I wrote, I wrote for Looney Tunes, which was like, you know, Bugs Bunny and stuff. And like, there was a lot of times where I would write for that and like do what I was told to do and do what I knew my part of the deal was. And like, you know, doing what I knew, doing what I thought was best, like that's what I would write based on the notes and the direction and feedback that I was given. And then I would, you know, and then I would give it to the producer and, and, and like, you know, then I would see the final result. And like, sometimes it would look pretty different from what I wrote. Sometimes it would look pretty similar to what I wrote, but like, there was never a part of me that was bummed out when it looked different than from what I wrote. Like, and I always see it like, and this goes back to improv of like, I always see that collaboration as better mm -hmm. for the most part. Yes. Like almost always that collaboration may it elevates something, but sometimes when it's like really pinpointed of like, you know what, you need to change this or you need to do this. Like, I remember I had this, like, this was also during 2012, which, which was such a pivotal year for me living here. I went to a, I had a meeting with an agent and they were like, is this your, is this, is this your hair? And I was like, yeah. Was I your agent at the time? I feel like that's something I would hit you with. No, I know. They were like, is this your hair? I'm like, do, I, do they think I'm wearing a wig? Like what the hell is going on here? And, and again, just wanting to please and wanting like people to accept me and to like me. I was like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. They're like, okay, well we, we will take you as a client if you cut your hair to your chin and dye it brown. And I was like, okay. And so I did. So, and I have like the headshots to prove it. Like I cut my hair to my chin and dyed it brown, got zero work, none. There was just a lot of shit like that, that I was like, okay, cool. Great. All right. You know? Yeah. And that was so dumb. Uh, yeah. I totally get that. Like it's, especially from the writing job, it sounds like you would have been happier writing something to the best of your ability, liking it, turning it in and the final product being completely different. Yeah. 
then writing something to like fit what they're trying to do and you hate what you wrote and then making exactly what you wrote. Like for sure. Even though people would be like, whoa, that's what you wrote. And it's not, you'd be like, I don't like that. You'd rather do things truly and honestly and creatively how you want in the moment and the process that you come in to do that. And if it changes, it changes. Like you're fine almost like letting it go, but. Right, right. Yeah, that's really well said. Yeah, it's like when, when I have, when it's my job, I want to do the best to my abilities, but I have a very good, I have, a, I have an easy time letting it go. What would be some highlights, I guess, going through Second City in Chicago and even the Groundlings in LA? Like what are things that like, if anyone's listening, thinking of doing those things, of like the things that either in the moment or looking back, you were like, really pay attention to that or pinpoint that because that's the heart of it. So I get asked this a lot because I, I teach improv um, often and have for years. The, like the advice that I give a lot to students, and I, I, give, this, I give this advice anyway, but I, I, I sometimes reiterate it more than I need to when I can tell that there's a lot of egos in the class. Um, and that is like the people that you meet and the relationships that you build and the reputation that you get and the work that you do now matters. All of like these people aren't going to go away. Some of them will, some of them you may never see again, but even the ones who you think are mediocre talent, I would say, especially the ones that you <laughs> think are mediocre talent, like these people who you are judging as not being good enough or good as good as you are or better than you or, you know, whatever, or assholes or super cool or, you know, however you, whatever adjectives you were putting on this, these, this, this class right now, this teacher right now, this institute right now, like these people are going to have a significant impact on the rest of your career. And they will give you opportunities or they won't give you opportunities or, but you will find yourself again, working with these people in some shape or form forever. Those relationships matter so much. Be as professional and kind to everybody as you can. I feel like it's, it's coming down to just being, can you be consistently decent? Yes. Can you be a decent human being? Can you be decent at what you do? Can you be decent to others over time that is just currency in the bank and people will be like well yeah they've always been nice and good like that just goes a long way i think it goes so much longer than people want to give it credit for because it's easy to judge mm -hmm. um to have that judgment and to not see that person as yourself you know is like that i guess that's the easy thing to do is to judge them and like I, like this comes up like you know i i do a lot of casting with second city where like i'll cast people in shows or whatever and like and then again that's kind of like a microcosm for the bigger picture like it's a second city or Grommans or any of any of those institutes are like a smaller thing for like a bigger thing and it comes up a lot where you're, you know, casting somebody and somebody in the room, you know, one out of five people who are casting this show will be like, that guy's hilarious. He is a pain in the ass to work with. And they'll have this story and this story. And then somebody else will jump in with another story. And then it's like, oh shit. Well, guess what? There's five other really talented people that we just saw that are similar to his type. I'm going to pick up this other guy who's who had a good audition, maybe not as good as this other guy, but he had a really good audition. He's really funny. Plus there's five people in the room who thinks this person is awesome and really fun to work with. So of course, if I'm going to invest six months of my life directing something, that's the person that I'm going to pick.
not the guy who like knocked it out of the park with his audition, yeah. but is an asshole, you know? All right, now is a uh, part of the show I think we're both gonna really enjoy. This is when my, uh, my guest and good friend, uh, Raz Clifford shows up. <gasps> Raz is a, a famed insult comic, and he just loves to pop by and chat with the guests and take them down a peg, give them a quick Raz. Cool. Uh, before they get too famous, because this is called Almost Almost Famous, and he wants to let them know, you know, put them in their place, so to speak. So, Raz, come on out here. Oh, hello, folks. Wait a second. Do my eyes deceive me? Is that Katie Nansen? She qualifies to be on this podcast? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, whatever you say, Daniel. Oh, my God, Katie. I am shocked that they let you out of the insane asylum. I didn't know you could leave like that. Katie is one of the wackiest broads I've ever met. And by that, I mean I would love to have her whacked. Okay, for the listeners, I want to paint a picture of Katie. So just imagine a face that resembles a halfway melted Yankee candle. <laughs> but this candle is able to giggle like an idiot child. And there you go. That's just so you get a picture in your mind of what that is. This is saying something. I think she's one of the few people on this podcast who's maybe been in this biz longer than I have. Because <laughs> she's been working for a while. And I just have been dying to ask you this question. Katie, what was it like to be performing on that stage and then you hear the scream from the audience and someone yells out, President Lincoln's been shot. <laughs> what was that night like? Do you want me to answer these questions? Of course. This is, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm razzing, but I'm also trying to get information here. I'm, what, I mean, just to be there at Ford's Theater. Um, well, it was pretty spooky. Sure. Now, am I correct? I looked over the notes from that night and I heard you were one of the few performers who were like, who gives a shit? Let's keep going. I've worked too hard to get on this stage. And yeah, so talk about that moment when you were like, oh, President Schmezident, I'm Katie Nonson and I'm here to act. Yes, well, as I mentioned before, I, my goal with my art is to be seen and I had a full packed audience and I was not going to leave that stage. So the show must go on. Everybody knows that. Everybody says that all the time. And it is true. And there are no exceptions to that rule. Oh, great. You heard it from Katie first. She is truly the monster at Ford's Theater. Well, <laughs> Katie, I hope you enjoyed that smooth razz I just played for you. All right. Take care. Please do not talk to me ever again. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Raz. Thanks, okay. Raz. Yeah. Glad he could pop by. Also, I didn't know that about Ford's Theater, so that was, that was interesting. Yeah, we continued the show after that for sure. Yeah, you had a, there's a whole crowd of people being like, keep going. Yeah, I mean, there were some distractions and like the, 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 the police kept it down. Thank God, because mm -hmm. I had a monologue. <laughs> <laughs> well, with, uh, you know, pursuing, you know, comedy and pursuing acting, in a way, I guess, later, it wasn't like you were like a kid, like, I'm a star. Like, it was sort of like, kind of all flowed together. Have you ever had thoughts or at the point, like, if not acting or writing or comedy, like, what is a field you would like to, like, jump into? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking about that more with the quarantine. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes down to knowing what my skill set is. As somebody who's been improvising regularly and professionally for 20 years, and it really has been that long, like since like I started my first Second City class. And how do I take this skill set that I have nurtured and mastered for 20 years and turn it into something that isn't dependent on somebody else giving me an opportunity? Mm-hmm. I am consciously, very consciously working on my current skill set and how to get it to a place where I'm not dependent on needing a casting director to choose me. That said, I would love to be auditioning more. I mean, I think everybody would right now, but it, it's, it's like that, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. And I think a lot of like, because like so, so much of these last 10 years that I've been in LA have been like really great, really wonderful, really rewarding, but also like there's been a chunk of it or moments of it for sure that have been like debilitatingly depressing. And like, I for sure went through a depression about five years ago, like big time where like, I mean, I, you know, maybe this is too much information, but I remember seeing a therapist. This is, this is exactly, like I would say like exactly five years ago. And this therapist who I adore and I don't see her anymore, but I um, did see her for several years. And she like, made me call her every day for a week, like uh, until the next time that I saw her. And, and basically she's like, you don't have to just leave me a message and let me know you're okay. In hindsight, and she didn't tell me this at the time, but eventually she did. She's like, I was worried you were going to kill yourself. Like, that's why I had you do those daily check-ins. Like, that's how low I was. And that's, you know, I, I hate giving this industry that power, but like a big part of it, uh, you can you can kind of trace back to like the lack of opportunity or the self-esteem that was taken away because of all this shit. Um, so anyway, I, I think because of, of that, like I had to like really dig deeply into like some self-development stuff. And um, at that point I had already been meditating very regularly, but like really just figuring out like myself and like not giving anything that much power ever again. And I think that I'm better at that for sure. But I think that like, because of that, like I am very interested in, yeah, like self-development, personal development. Uh, I I don't know if a therapy in the traditional sense, I don't know if that's maybe right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's a lot of things with therapy that I don't agree with, but like, like, I think that I'm very good, at, like, when I teach, I think, like, okay, well, what, what makes me a good teacher? And teaching is not something that I want to make into a profession, by the way. It's, it's a part-time gig for me. But, like, I think the thing that makes me a good teacher compared to some other people is I'm very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, that would be something, like, that's another skill that I've gotten through improv indirectly of, like, okay, well, how can I use that skill to have a more stable career? So I don't know. I don't have, you know, I don't really have an answer. I have, I've been talking forever, but I don't really have an answer to that. And don't worry, I'll just edit your sentences. So you just say, <laughs> it would be just be like, butcher. And I'll be like, great, thank you so much. <laughs> um, now with this business, have you ever had thoughts of getting on and being a guest on like a late night talk show? And you have any, any stories that you would tell or a story you're like, oh, when I get on that show, 
Oh my God. I, of course I fantasize about like being on that side of it. Um, when I first moved here, I did the moth a couple times mm. and, uh, one by the way, Oh, I won twice. I, one was about detasseling corn when I was in high school, which I think if you're not from Iowa or the Midwest, you probably don't even know what that is. Uh, do you know what that is? Wait, do you say detasseling corn? <laughs> Yeah. Like the corn just yeah. graduated and you got to take the tassels off. You're not far off. Wait, really? Do you know, do you want to know what yeah, it is? Yeah, I do not know what this is. I'm okay. from the Midwest, but I guess not, not that. You're not from Iowa. You don't have cornfields in your backyard. This is like true. I do. This is true. Okay. So, okay. So this is what a corn row is. This is what a cornfield is. Like a cornfield is like acres and acres, like thousands of acres sometimes. And the rows of corn in a, in, uh, in any given cornfield are generally anywhere from like half a mile to a mile long. Like that's pretty average for like a corn row. So we'll just go with a mile because that's, that tends to be more on the, on, the, on how long these miles of corn are. And the, the corn is placed, planted very closely together because obviously farmers want to get as much, you know, money for their crops as they can. So they, they plant their rows closely together and part, and there's the way that it works is, I hope I get the math right on this. They're called male rows. I think it's a male row, four female rows of corn, another male row, four female rows of corn, another male row. That's how like, that's how um, corn field is planted. And what, so then what detasslers do is like in like late July, mid, mid July to early August, you are, a detasseler walks down these mile long rows of corn, only the female rows, not the male rows. You walk down the mile, mile long row of female corn, and at that, at this point, the corn is probably like at least six feet tall, six feet plus. And you have to pull up and pull out the tassel in this stalk of corn and throw it to the ground. So the male row can fertilize the female plant and grow corn. So it's part of like how corn is grown is to, you have to detassel the female rows so the male can implant it with seeds or whatever tassels i don't know so uh it's intense to the max you usually wake up like we would wake up around 4 30 be out in the cornfield by five and walk down these mile long rows of corn and pull the tassel out and like corn is like no joke like it is sharp as shit so you would get like something called corn rash all over your body where like little like walking down these aisles of, of corn that's you know you're, you're it's it's not even a foot apart that these you know rows are planted and they're six feet tall. So you're just getting whipped in the face and all over your body with um, corn leaves and corn stalks. And so you are like cut up, like your hand, like anything, any part of your body that's not covered is cut up. And because it's like late July, early August, and you're in Iowa and it's hot as shit, and it's really humid. Um, you don't want to wear a lot of clothes because it's so warm, but you kind of have to, to protect yourself from the skin. So it's like that balance. The guy who I detasseled for, like the crew leader, he was our gym teacher and he was hardcore. His name was Gordy. He wouldn't let us wear gloves because he believed that you couldn't feel the tassel. So like the, your hands would just be like this bloody mess, like bloody and cuts and in pain. And they would callous over and they would callus overnight. And the next morning when you, you, when you go out into the cornfield, like the calluses would be cut open again by these corn stalks. So you would just be like this constant in, in physical pain from doing this. And um, you get paid next to nothing, but you were young. I mean, you were in high school when you did this or even younger at, at sometimes. 
So the money was like, any money is great. Like you felt like you were loaded, uh, but it was just really intense manual labor. And, and like also super bonding because you were with like a bunch of your friends and high school kids. And like, you would like, I, I, I don't know. So I would probably tell a story about detasseling. And so that won the moth? better i was just explaining to you what the dazzling was but yeah it would probably be something like that it'd be some like a story of detailing but but told better and with a point to it as opposed to just explaining what it was of course well thank you everyone again for listening and thank you to katie nonson for being my guest i'm your host daniel acker and this has been almost almost famous <laughs>